But the Wall Street Journal had these intrepid investigative reporters who were very focused on this. And they pointed out the many, many flaws and falsehoods involved in the you know, publicity about that. In the end, the data were analyzed. And the expectation from the company was that when, when the data are analyzed, we'll find that it works really well, we'll be able to use it. The data showed a higher rate of heart attacks and deaths in people who received polyheme. These are people who died in the research study that they'd never been told they were in. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Rochelle Saunders. With me is Harriet Washington. She is an ethicist, editor, and writer. She has been a writing fellow in bioethics at Harvard Medical School, was the 2015 to 2016 Miriam Shearing Fellow at the University of Nevada's Black Mountain Institute, a research fellow in medical ethics at Harvard Medical School, and a senior research scholar at the National Center for Bioethics at Tuskegee University. She has held fellowships at Stanford University and currently teaches bioethics at Columbia University. She is the author of several books, including Medical Apartheid, The Dark History of Medical Experimentation on Black Americans from Colonial Times to the Present, A Terrible Thing to Waste, Environmental Racism and Its Assault on the American Mind, Infectious Madness, The Surprising Science of How We Catch Mental Illness, and the most recent, Carte Blanche, The Erosion of Informed Consent in Medical Research, which she's here to talk with me about today. Harriet, welcome to Science for the People. Thank you so much for having me, Michelle. So I'd like to start by hearing a little bit about what inspired or maybe prompted you to write this book, in particular during a global pandemic. It's a topic. Um, the fact that informed consent, which most Americans think of as almost a birthright, something that um, is our right before um, being involved in medical research, the right to understand what we're being asked to become involved in and to say yes or no. Um, but I had gradually come to understand through my studies um, and interviews that it's disappearing quietly from the American landscape. Um, and then I discovered, well, fairly early on, I discovered that there were two laws, um, revisions to the Code of Federal Regulations made in 1996 that escalated this, that denoted certain categories of medical research as not no longer requiring informed consent. And yet the pu public doesn't seem to know about this. In fact, many physicians and researchers didn't know about this. Many of my bioethics students don't know about this. It's happening quietly with a lack of transparency. I find it alarming, especially because I've known since at least 2005 that some of the studies being conducted under this aegis seem to offer a, a slew of ethical violations and not surprisingly considering the state and history of American healthcare and medical culture, they seem to disproportionately affect people of color. However, they're a danger for all of us. I've known of this for a while, but when COVID struck, things escalated again because it's not unusual for military expediency, medical expediency, to offer, um, become sort of a catalyst for the loss of rights. And I saw it happening here. I saw that there were being various medical policies being adopted that disregarded people's right to say yes or no. And I thought it was really important that the American people know about this because not only had it not been um, announced to us, there are ways in which it's actually being actively hidden from us. Language, I mean, semantics, 
um, are part of it, but also part of it is a tendency to downplay people's um, concern about medical research as somehow reflecting their ignorance, when in reality, it doesn't reflect their ignorance. It actually is sometimes a very logical approach to understanding that these rights are diminishing. So I felt someone should make this known and should spell it out so that people who are not researchers, who are not scientists, would know of it and be able to understand what it might mean for them, and also to contribute to our understanding of determination of what do we want to live in a country like that? Do we want to live in a country where people can't say yes or no to medical research? It often to me feels like in Western society, we sort of take for granted that medical ethics is, and I use air quotes here, a solved problem. Um, generally speaking, when we hear stories about questionable medical ethics, they tend to be the same few stories and over and over, and they tend to be from the past, again, using air quotes. Um, and I think quite often, as you say, it takes the average person by surprise. Um, these are seen, questionable medical ethics are seen as more aberrations, kind of exceptions that deviate from the norm. But reading through your book, it seems like there's a lot of systematic ways that we are, uh, as you say, eroding consent. It's absolutely true. And it's not just that the stories are from the past. The stories are selectively taken from the past. The experience of certain people is alighted from the discipline of medical ethics. When I studied medical ethics, I was struck by the fact that many of the studies that I found most concerning that I knew a great deal about, having researched them for my book, Medical Apartheid, never entered into or never discussed in, in medical ethics for. And when I would raise them, people would look at me quizzically. They had never heard of these events. The experts had not heard of these events or said they hadn't heard of them. They don't become part of the dialogue. And um, one can talk about why, but I'm more concerned that this happens at all. And when it does happen, it happens with the search dealing with people of color, medically marginalized, poor people. Um, and you're right, the same twice told tales are trotted out. And unfortunately, a lot of the ethics determination is made by people who, yes, have gotten exquisite training in the field, but they also tend to come, or at least until recently, have tend to come from the same demographic. The people who are the most profoundly affected are often not represented at the table of ethicists discussing whether something should or should not take place, whether something is or is not ethically acceptable. The subjects tend not to be part of that conversation, making it a very limited and narrow way of ethically analyzing medical policies and medical research. So I absolutely want to dig into all of that a lot more, but I want to back up just a step and make sure everybody uh, listening all has the same kind of working definition in mind, in particular of a key phrase we've used a few times already, which is the term medical consent. So can you um, help us create a sort of shared definition of what it means when we say consent in a medical context, and in particular, when we're talking about medical research? Today, we're most often talking about informed consent. And that is a situation where the researcher lays out for the potential subject precisely what he's trying to do. I'm trying to find a better treatment for diabetes, for example, and explaining to the subject 
what would be expected of them, and how this um, testing this treatment might affect their life. Um, all the information that is known about safety and efficacy is shared with the subject. And if there are any red flags, that has to be shared with the subject too. And the subject is told what we expect you to do, how long it's going to take, not only how it might affect you physically and medically, as far as we know, but also how it might affect your everyday life. Will you be unable to eat, unable to drive, too tired to get up in the morning? All these things have to be conveyed to the subject. Everything that a reasonable person would need to know in order to decide whether or not they want to participate in this in the um, research has got to be conveyed to the person. Now, of course, we don't know everything. That's why it's called research. We're trying to find out, but everything that is known. And during the course of the study, as new information arises, that has to be conveyed to the subject too. For example, if we find out that people um, taking particular medication in the study um, are unable to drive, that has to be conveyed to the subject. We find out that redheads seem to be having a higher, much higher rate of um, bad effects. You have to convey that. That's the law, and that's what we're supposed to do. And so consent, though, is a broader term. Informed consent um, is something that arose during the 20th century, became codified in the law in 1957. And um, before that, we had consent in which you didn't necessarily tell people, you don't tell people all the information that you tell them with informed consent, but you do minimally have to say, I'm conducting medical research. Do you want to participate? You can't let the person think they're just getting treated. You have to let them know, know you're involved in research. That was on the rule beforehand. And with informed consent, there's another really interesting and really important, I think, distinction that tends to be ignored too often. And that is that with informed consent, the Nuremberg Code that a lot of our laws are um, predicated upon, the first tenet says the um, voluntary of the consent of the subject is absolutely essential. Voluntary consent sounds redundant, but it's not. Because you can elicit consent in a lot of ways. It's not always voluntary. Uh, for example, I argue that people in prisons who are involved in medical research, they offer, con they um, give their consent to a study, but is it truly voluntary? Considering the inherently coercive nature of prisons, I don't think that it is. Considering the fact that in some prisons, um, the prison board has um, given consent, quote unquote, for subjects that refuse consent meaning that you actually could not give consent. And also given the fact that, as we may talk about, what well, you want to talk about a bit more later, semantics are used to clothe things that are not really consent with the term consent, which can be confusing. Um, for example, for a long time, medical research into artificial blood, uh, at the beginning, they said that they were going to offer community consent but it wasn't consent at all. It only involved telling a certain community, hey, we're going to be testing this artificial blood in your, in your area. Just thought you ought to know in case you're one of the people that we end up giving the artificial blood to while you're unconscious. So there are, you know, a lot of um, vagaries, but the most important thing is that informed consent um, gives a person all the information they need to know to make an informed decision. And the other variants do not. 
So, of course, when we're talking about um, non-medical scientific research with human subjects, that all makes a ton of sense. And I think most people can wrap their heads around this. When we get into certain types of medical research, things the water starts to get a little bit murky because there's certain types of research that could be really valuable, but also potentially um, may get may get problematic on the consent area when we're talking about things like researching new ways to deal with trauma patients. Not all trauma patients are able to consent. And in fact, when they are picked up and taken to a medical facility or arrive in a medical facility and then become unconscious, we don't stop treating them because uh, they're no longer conscious. We assume some types of consents. And as you talk about in your book, this can make the medical, the consent for medical research even murkier? Well, actually, you have, um, as many, many people do, including some physicians I talked to, you've actually confused quite a few concepts here. They're all important concepts. But first of all, you talked about treatment, but research is not treatment. The goal of treatment is to um, is focused upon an individual to ameliorate their health and their well-being, their wellness. With research, your focus is not on that individual. Your focus is on finding modality that's going to help people, typically people in the future, or people other than those who are subjects. So you can't speak of treating and equate that to medical research. Those are two different things. Treatments are also things that have been tested and are known to be safe and effective. The things you're testing via medical research it's not true. That's why, that's why they're involved in the research to find out if they're safe and effective. So here's the thing. If you're talking about, the argument is often that, as you gave a very good example, trauma. We need to have better ways of treating trauma um, people and trauma patients. And this research is essential to do that. It may be, however, to conduct it without getting the permission of the people involved in it is not defensible. The example of a person being unconscious and therefore unable to give consent is exactly the wording used in the Code of Federal Regulations that uh, bypasses consent. But that's not logical and it's not ethical. For one thing, the assumption that someone's unconscious is something that is made predicated as a reason for doing this research, and yet there haven't been empirical studies to show that these people are always unconscious. In fact, we know we're, they are not. I talked to one subject who woke up in the ambulance to discover that she's being infused with artificial blood as part of a study, you know, who's um, under the excuse that the people who are in tra the trauma patients are always unconscious. They're not. Even if they are, though, um, I argue that if someone's unconscious, unable to render consent, then what you must do is treat them. But you treat them as if you had no research to worry about them. You treat them with the standard of care, something that is known to be safe and effective. That's ethically. Using them, using their bodies without their permission to hopefully, because it may not, to hopefully help future patients or other patients, that disregards their the subject's own rights and welfare, and it's not ethical. Um, it's convenient, but it's far from ethical. So a lot of people who are proponents of bypassing informed consent use exactly that example. You know, someone who's unconscious and can't render consent. If they can't render consent, then they can't be in the research, but they can be treated 
they can be treated with the standard of care. It's fascinating how easy it is to to mash those concepts together of medical treatment and medical research. Exactly. They really do feel sometimes like they're interchangeable. If I think of um, some people in my extended circle who are cancer patients, um, you know, you hear about cancer patients undergoing experimental treatments all the time, but they're called experimental treatments. And so even in the regular kind of parlance, um, they're being confused. It's it's so easy to, it's such a fuzzy boundary in the way we talk about it these days. And you've hit upon something very important, semantics. Mm-hmm. It's used very cleverly to sabotage people's ability to see the distinction between someone receiving treatment to ameliorate their health and their well-being and someone being used in the service of other patients. And um, it's very important. I wrote an article for the uh, Journal of Law, Medicine, and Ethics about semantics and its use in medical research in that manner. And um, Jay Katz, a professor at Yale who was a brilliant bioethicist, um, uh, I speak, spoke with him many times, and um, he pointed out this is called the therapeutic illusion. Mm-hmm. making research subjects feel that they are privy to some kind of um, special advanced treatment when in reality they're being used to serve the needs of other, pa- of other patients in the future. Let's not forget that despite the um, hope, you know, I'm sure a very sincere hope by researchers that um, the person will be helped by the modality, there's always a chance they will not be. There's always a chance that the drug being given them might not help them, might harm them. Um, so there's, you can't call it a benefit until you know that the person's been helped. And so the semantics are very deceptive. They really need to be cleaned up. And the confusion that they generate makes a lot of people um, agree with their stance who would not agree if they had a better understanding of what was um, wrapped in those semantics. Yeah, I remember there's a, I don't remember where in the book it is, but there is a section where you talk about even um, the very careful choice of words, the move away from the term medical experiment uh, towards medical research. Those that in itself, right? We have a very negative connotation of experiment and medicine, but as soon as you talk about research, there's somehow like a positive vibe in the room. Research can't be bad. Research is great. Experiment sounds scary, right? Right, exactly. And that actually was engineered. Um, I had noticed that when I would give lectures and talk about experimentation and have people say, don't use experiment, you know, that's a loaded term. I'm thinking it wasn't a loaded term 20 years ago, what happened? And that's happened to quite a few terms. Um, They become, um, I won't say banned, but they become stigmatized. And as language changes over over the time in response to pressure, you know, but in this case, the pressure is often exerted by people who have a vested interest in, um, getting rid of a label that makes people that might make people uncomfortable. And sometimes things change. For example, I use example of the word, um, well, actually experimentation is a really good word. I'm glad you used that one. But um, there are other terms as well that have been 
modified to have a bad connotation. But the bad connotation doesn't come from a change in what they are. It comes from a change in the needs of um, the medical system. Right. Yeah, because in particular, when we're talking about research, one of the important things you need is subjects to perform research on for medical research. And um, you need to kind of do a sales pitch, right? You need to persuade someone to opt in to becoming a research subject, which I think most of us um, just on the face of it would be inclined to say no most of the time. So there is uh, there is definitely a PR effort that has to go into that. So there's a part of me that gets it, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's what happens. The, um, the changes are can be really insidious. For example, one thing I've noticed happens a great deal is that when subjects are being recruited, at some point, discussion begins talking about patients rather than subjects. Mm-hmm. That's an important distinction and it's often lost. Mm-hmm. And what happens there? It's what Cat said, the therapeutic illusion. You know, now you're being spoken of as if you were a patient, as if um, the, the researcher's goal is to maximize your individual health, but it's not. It's important to understand that. That's not in itself a bad thing. You know, people sometimes understand the modality may or may not help them, but out of altruism, they want to be in the in the sub in the study in order to help other people. That's beautiful, but you have to know that's what's transpiring. You can't join the study under the illusion that it's going to help you. It may or may not. Yeah, I mean, I think there are people who absolutely are happy to opt in as informed subjects um, for a variety of real legitimate reasons. Like you say, altruism, there's also, there may not be a good treatment for you. It may actually be your best option. Um, That's a real thing. That's one of the reasons I think there are so many people willing to opt into um, experimental cancer research is for a lot of people, that is their best option. So there are compelling cases um, that you can be presented with where, yeah, maybe that is a choice you want to make, uh, even with informed consent and all the information. Um, so it, it definitely, it, it's, a, it's a complicated area of, um, I, I understand the need for the sales pitch in some situations and to also sort of make it go down a little easier as, as we all are, we're easily scared. So sometimes there's some of that that has to be managed, but also I'm generally a forthright person. And I sort of hope that people will be forthright with me uh, and just give it to me straight as it is. Yes. Well, I think part of the problem is a very, I always talk about this very illogical division of labor where Mm -hmm. we expect the researcher to tell a subject, um, information that is unbiased about his own study. But the researcher believes in the study. He or she really thinks or really hopes that it's going to benefit people. And it's not really logical to ask that person to objectively present all the um, benefits and risks. Right. And I'm not convinced that usually happens. And medical apartheid, I wrote my opinion that this should be a job for the government, not for individual researchers. Um, as researchers, um, you have to take a government course. I did take, when I was at Harvard, a week-long course um, that t- 
introduces you to many of the ethical issues as well as other things, practical issues regarding research. And I think subjects ought to have the same advantage. They should have a course, a short course offered them that tells them all the ins and outs of medical research, all the risks and benefits and dangers and things they should ask about and worry about. And then have someone who's truly objective, or at least more objective than the person running the study than the PI, um, give them information about the study that they want to be involved in. That makes more sense to me. I think you're more likely to have an objective um, portrayal and subject who can trust that it's an objective portrayal. Yeah, I wonder sometimes if the um, the value of science as being objective really gets in the way there. I think scientists in particular in what we think of as hard sciences like medicine um, have a tendency to really cling to that objective value. And the reality is we're all human and we all, you know, if it's your life's work, if it's important to you, you are going to be biased and blind to certain aspects of it, even if you're doing your honest best to be objective. I think that's just the nature of being human. It is. Um, Thomas Kuhn, um, in his book, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, um, brilliantly laid out how we think of science as being this logical journey from you know facts to hypotheses to et cetera. And it often is, but he points out that it also is affected very heavily by things that are not logical, that are not um, so bloodless. Uh, people's biases, people's personalities, political events, historical events, all these things also affect the practice of science. And many of the things that transpire are not based only on logic. They're also based on all these vagaries of human behavior and thought that cannot be quantified and are not logical. And we ignore that to our peril, I think. We have to keep that in mind. One of the things I've seen that disturbs me, and I talk about in carte blanche, is how often researchers have a not only a vested interest, but have a conflict of interest or more than one conflict of interest that, in my opinion, and I think in many reasonable people's opinion, would prevent them from having either an objective uh, evaluation of their own research or the information given to the subject being an objective, or frankly, sometimes I'm not sure that they should be conducting research at all mm -hmm. because um, it'd be hard to understand. It'd be hard to be convinced that the large amount of money or the academic um, advantages, the promotions, the fame, the glory, all those things affect researchers. They're human beings. And um, I think it's really important that we keep, keep that in mind. We don't. And a lot of... Um, non-consensual studies, it's not just a matter of um, the rationale offered to the public, which is that we need better uh, treatments for trauma victims. It's also a matter of things that will benefit the institution and the researcher. And that needs to be part of the conversation too. Absolutely. So I do want to talk um, about one of your examples that you bring up in the book, because I think it is very illustrative of the type of erosion you're identifying as really problematic. Um, and it's the artificial blood uh, case study. I think it's polyheim. Is that the way to polyheme, pronounce it? Polyheme, exactly. Polyheme. Polyheme. Um, so can you talk us uh, talk a little bit about um, those studies and how we run into problems of medical consent in some of the medical research that was done on polyheme? Yes. 
artificial blood, if it worked, would be a huge boon to human health, and it would be very financially advantageous institutions. Um, ambulances in this country don't carry blood. You have to type and match it. You'd have to um, refrigerate it. It's too difficult to carry enough blood to meet their needs. And so they use saline. But saline works very well if you're um, not too far from a hospital. If you're within an hour of a hospital, probably maybe even more, but definitely an hour of a hospital, um, saline will do what needs, what needs to be done. It'll expand the blood volume, keep you from going to shop until you can get to medical care. Most people who live in this country, the vast majority, live no far, farther than 20 minutes from a hospital. So saline works well for them. However, artificial blood, many types of artificial blood have been tried um, over at least two centuries, and it would be so profitable to have a blood substitute that could be carried without refrigeration and used with ease, and it would save a lot of time and trouble. And so it's kind of this holy grail. But one company had a type of artificial blood. They made it from old expired blood that people had donated and was now too old to use. They chemically processed it and said, oh, you can't normally give, um, how can I put this? hemoglobin to people. You can't just infuse it into them. It doesn't work. It'll cause, it'll, it'll cause all kinds of problems. Heart attacks, the blood will um, be damaged. It's just a disaster. But they found a way, they say, of stabilizing it so that you could infuse hemoglobin. They made it from this old expired blood, but now they had to test it. They did test it in a hospital and it was a disaster. They had a high rate of people there are people dying of heart attacks and blood disorders at twice the normal rate. So the FDA wouldn't approve it. And they thought, we still want to have this approved. Um, one report, the earliest report I read today, that that was a $6 billion a year industry. They had secret meetings with the, with the um, FDA. And finally, uh, we're able to get a test approved. But this test would not tell people they were being infused with it. This test would be people, um, EMTs carrying on the ambulances, going to a trauma site. If the person needed saline, they would give them either polyheme or saline. How did they decide? When they got there, the computer would decide whether the person got saline or polyheme. So the EMTs would get to a trauma site and instead of rushing to the care for the patient, take time to open the envelope, tell them which thing to give to the patient. It wasn't predicated on the patient's needs or the patient's own um, profile. No, it was predicated on what was best for the research study. So this random distribution was given, people were infused with polyheme. And in order to do this, they did this community, they called it community consent, but I mentioned before, it was not really consent. They actually went to communities and warned them, listen, in your area, we've got these ambulances with, with um, artificial blood on them. You might be one of them. Just thought you should know. They gave them a lot of information. I looked at the PowerPoint. Some of the information was wrong. They claimed there had been no health problems with, with it. But as I already said, people had died in the hospital study. So anyway, they were giving these people um, polyheme who they picked up 
as trauma victims. And then they take them to the hospital. But instead of giving them the standard of care, blood in the hospital, they kept giving them polyheme for 12 more hours. Why? Was that better for the subject? No, that was better for the research study. Their data was going to be better and kept and easier to analyze if they kept them on polyheme for 12 more hours. So the patient safety and welfare was disregarded. I keep saying patient. They were patients in the hospital, but these are actually subjects. Mm -hmm. So at the end, um, oh, by the way, a lot of the publicity about polyheme was very positive because the researchers would go to TV and radio and newspaper accounts and sing the praises. Oh, with this artificial blood, this is going to be fantastic. You don't have to worry about if you have a rare blood type. You don't have to worry about all these things. If you're a Jehovah's Witness, um, you can accept this easily. I'm not sure that's true, but they said it. And they did all this public, positive publicity, but the Wall Street Journal had these intrepid investigative reporters who were very focused on this. And they pointed out the many, many flaws and falsehoods involved in the you know, publicity about that. In the end, the data were analyzed. And the expectation from the company was that when, when the data are analyzed, we'll find that it works really well, we'll be able to use it, the data showed a higher rate of heart attacks and deaths in people who received polyheme. These are people who died in the research study that they'd never been told they were in. I spoke to one um, subject, the one I mentioned before, who said that although the um, rationale was that these are unconscious people, you can't ask their permission. She woke up in the ambulance in time to see them infusing. In fact, she told me that in the ambulance, they were giving her blood. I told her they don't give blood. There wasn't blood. They were giving you polyheme. So the study was um, a failure, but more to the point, the falsehoods used to promulgate the study and to whitewash the study were really troubling. I should add that the Data Safety and Monitoring Committee required that the makers of polyheme in testing it had to give people a way to opt out of the study. So if you didn't want to be in the study and you knew it was being conducted in your city, you had to have a way of opting out. And that way was to obtain a plastic bracelet, a blue plastic bracelet saying, I declined the polyheme study. You had to wear it 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, all the time. And so in Seattle, when they were testing it in Seattle, um, the paper ran an article about testing various modalities without consent. And people were so alarmed that they were overwhelmed by demands for bracelets. They ran out and they ran out for a year. Oh, wow. A year. That meant for one year, if you lived in Seattle, were driving through Seattle, caught in Seattle, you could be impressed in this one of these non-consensual studies and you had absolutely no recourse. And of course, the problem with asking for a bracelet is you didn't know the study was being conducted in the first place. Mm -hmm. The community, the meetings about uh, giving uh, information to the community were sparsely attended. I saw the marginalia from some of these meetings and not only were they sparsely attended, but the people there who asked pointed questions were described as hostile. Notations were made on the committee. It was really quite the disaster. So in at Duke University area, Raleigh, North Carolina, um, 
a, a small percentage of the people who lived in the area actually knew about the study. And that was a case around the country. There are 26 sites at the end in this country, and most of the people did not know it being conducted in their area. So how can you ask for a bracelet if you don't even know it's being conducted? So there's a couple of things I definitely want to unpack here. Uh, the first is I want to dig into what community consent means, um, because I think that's something that probably a few people have heard, but I'm not sure that most people really know what that means. So when we talk about any kind of research, in particular medical research, getting community consent, what actually does that mean practically? Unfortunately, they have, mo- they have mostly abandoned that language because there is no consent involved. What it means is that the researchers come show you a PowerPoint slide, the same PowerPoint slide for polyheme was used all over the country in Canada. And it gives you information that they think you need to know about the study. And it's being conducted in your area. And there have been no problems with this modality. It's all very rosy. Um, uh, there aren't any problems or issues acknowledged in the, and they inform you what they want to know. And afterwards, they ask if you have any questions. And people, um, they tend to be held at sites where, let's just say the, the people who come to these, um, these meetings tend not to be people who are the subjects. Right. Uh, they tend to be held in government offices or in hospitals, et cetera. And so when people did ask pointed questions, I saw for some of the sites, like the marginalia was, marginalia was very hostile, you know, mm-hmm. uh, they would, someone would say, well, how do I know that this is going to be benefit me? And that would describe as a hostile question. So, and as I mentioned before, the information is only correct. So it's not, a, consent has got nothing to do with it. Consent was only, frankly, a semantic shield to make people think that they were there was consent involved. Um, now they call it community consultation, but it's not really a consultation either because people can ask questions, but it's not at all clear that that's going to affect the outcome of the study. The study is not modified. I mean, for example, the same PowerPoint slide is used in every site, and um, people actually receive information that researchers want them to know, but they're not being told about the hospital study. They're not being told about the kind of things that I would find really important deciding when I wanted to go into study. I would, I would want to know that people in, in testing this modality had died in hospital. And I'm going to think, am I going to be safe um, receiving it in an ambulance? <laughs> if I can't, they can't keep me alive in the hospital. Um, so it's, um, I, I look at it as semantic veil, you know, it's just giving people information that you want them to know without any real um, opportunity to change the study or even to keep yourself out of the study. I would assume as well that being a, uh, a series of events that they run, my assumption, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that they're probably not heavily attended. Um, probably like town hall-sized or community hall-sized spaces. I imagine there's not thousands and thousands of people <laughs> attending these um, community consultations. I'm assuming the attendance is pretty small. Right. I offered data for the um, North Carolina um, leg of the study, and I don't remember exactly what they were, but I remember it was quite low, mm-hmm. and it's always quite low. We're always talking about exactly to say an auditorium with maybe – Depends on the on the city, of course. But sure. we're talking maybe a dozen people, sometimes a few dozen. 
that's the largest um, showing that I saw. I'm not saying they weren't sh largest showing. That's the largest one that I saw. And when you consider you're talking about metropolitan areas in um, Raleigh, North Carolina, what millions of eight million people, right? And you have thirty people come to us to uh, a meeting. That's nothing. That does nothing to disseminate accurate information about the study. I mean, when you're talking about trying to get a community awareness or notification or whatever you want to call it for a place the size of a city, 26 people in a room ain't going to do it for you. <laughs> and it's perfectly legal, unfortunately, but, but it's not ethical because even these people have no way of getting out of the study. They can weigh the they can wear the bracelet. Yes, you can do that. Although I would submit that one should not have to wear a bracelet, you know, 24-7. And how about the people who don't live in the area but are visiting or driving through, for heaven's sake? Um, so it's it's simply not ethical. Even if you were given accurate, complete information, which which you're not being, I don't think, um, It's if you can't act on that information by saying, no, I, I choose not to do this, then how are you being protected? How are your rights being protected? I want to pull on a thread that you mentioned as well, which is quite often the people who attended these events, the small number that they are, are not really representative of the people most likely to become subjects of this research. And this picks up probably on a couple of other threads that uh, you had mentioned earlier on the fact that a lot of this kind of experimentation and medical research does tend to be done on people who are disadvantaged in our current society. Right. And, you know, that's actually um, a matter of historical precedent. In the past, and I'm talking about um, the 19th century, when U.S. hospitals, um, the modern hospital, was being built and located it, the location of hospitals was predicated on the availability of the bodies of black people because white, neither what black people or white people wanted to end up being research subjects. Nobody wanted that, but black people couldn't protest and whites could. In fact, I, I note in medical apartheid how in the, in the battle to um, get hospitals located to your city, uh, there were city fathers who would say, you don't want to go to um, Philadelphia. There are a lot of white people who are working in Philadelphia. You want a city full of black laborers, and we have them. This was actually a selling point. And that's so it's not any accident. The catchment area, the area around um, hospitals, institutions where they draw their patients and subjects is um, filled with people of color. That was by design. So that's still the case today. You go to go to most hospitals. In fact, Harvard um, Medical School was originally located in Cambridge with the rest of the college. They moved to Boston to be near the almshouse and the bodies of the poor. So this is a reality, you know, um, it's, it's, you know, real as redlining in American history. And the result is that hospitals are surrounded by pockets of people of color still. And yet, so they would hold these meetings, sometimes in hospitals, and people of color did live there, right? But they were not places where people tended to go. And they would also hold them in city buildings. Uh, the city buildings were definitely, you know, places often not near where people of color lived, not near where their potential subjects lived, places where um, people who, like white-collar workers, tended to work mm -hmm. and gravitate. So, um it's interesting because I have no idea 
I have I'm, I don't offer any speculation about why they would locate and where where they did. But I'm thinking that if I really wanted to speak to these subjects, if I really wanted to convey information to them. I think I'd be more inclined to go places where they were used to going, where they often went, community centers, places like that. Um, and they don't, they didn't do that. They stuck to what I did see was that at the attendance at these meetings often largely constituted of journalists. I'm not mm -hmm. saying that they were like, they were overwhelming number, but there are always journalists there. And I think that, um, that was certainly to the advantage of the researchers because they would have journalists there who would hear their very um, positive assessment of the study they were conducting and all too often would just replicate it unchanged in their newspaper. Um, often characterizing it once again as, you know, cutting edge research that is um, going to be of huge benefit and here's your chance to sign up for it. Again, Jay Katz's Therapeutic Illusion. So these um, polyheim studies uh, that were taking place in communities and urban areas, uh, just for the listeners who haven't read the book, we're not talking that this happened 50 years ago. This is reasonably recent. Yes. Um, 2004, around 2005, when I wrote, when Medical Apartheid was published in 2007, I think it was still ongoing. It's just ending then. Mm -hmm. So we're talking, it's not at all ancient history. This is 15 years ago. And frankly, that was only one study. Similar studies are conducted on a much larger scale now. When, when the polyheme study had such an alarming showing, higher rates of death and higher rates of heart attacks, I thought the only good thing about this is they'll now abandon this. But I was wrong. At the same time, the Resuscitation Outcomes Consortium a huge study, huge multi-center study aiming to enroll 20,000 subjects was launched in order to test a variety of modalities for trauma victims. And they have uh, sites here in this country and in Canada. And um, it's huge. There have been many, many studies subsumed under this uh, umbrella of the ROC. And it's, it's really shocking to me, um, the kind of things that are being done. Uh, inducing hypothermia in gunshot victims. Hypothermia is something that doctors are usually trying to reverse. Mm -hmm. It's known to be deadly. It's part of the triad of death. And yet, um, researchers is, um, is of the opinion that it might help people to survive. I say Mike that never has yet. And when he announced it, and when an article in the New Yorker, a very um, fawning, uncritical article, um, he promised that there would be reports showing how well it worked in two years, there still are no reports. I know because I've been checking up, you know, every six months or so to find out if they published anything to show this is working, but they're still funding it. And when I researched this um, in more detail, I found out that the person, the PI, conducting the study, he is actually stands to benefit from the sale of the products he's testing. Right. You know, and um, that conflict of interest is something that, in my opinion, should invalidate the study, but it doesn't. So I want to uh, segue a little bit to talk about both prisoners. Uh, and I also want to talk about the military because there's some really 
um, interesting way that this mashes up. And I think very similar ways, actually, when you think about um, the way medical research is has been conducted in the military and the way medical research has been, ducta- been conducted on prisoners, some pretty alarming parallels, actually, in the way that that's been done. Um, so can you give us a, a quick overview of how we've approached uh, medical research on those two groups of people? Well, for prisoners... Um, Robert Boyle, father of chemistry, um, he said that if we're going to make medical trials, we should do it on prisoners. And that has been a very strong sentiment through the years. In fact, I found that um, when the black physicians in this country who are fighting for their professional lives around the turn of the century, by 1910, um, when they established their journal, the Journal of the National Medical Association, one of the early editorials said, we should be conducting medical research on prisoners. They said this because they knew or were deeply concerned by the fact that Black people were used disproportionately to test medical um, uh, modalities. And the testing was really um, unethical and cruel, et cetera. It was a huge problem for them because Black doctors then were barred from many hospitals. They couldn't go to the hospital to protect their patients. And so they said, let's use prisoners instead. There's always been this attitude that prisons were like dangerous parasites who will not be missed if something should happen to them. And they've become sacrificial lambs. The Mm -hmm. public and also prisons being closed societies, closed institutions, means that who knows what happens in the prison? I've had family members in prison, and I can tell you that it's very difficult, much more difficult than people imagine, to actually go in to see them sometimes. It's very um, precarious. The rules are really draconian, and um, they're close institutions. It's really, once you're in prison, it's an inherently coercive environment where um, you don't have outsiders who are able to evaluate and protect you. Also, um, Money means something different in prison than what we're used to. You know, if you watch the movies, you see that pe- prisoners want money for commissary so they can buy their, you know, their Cokes and hot dogs, etc. Prisoners also need money for freedom. You know, most bail bondsmen will release you for 10 percent on, on your bail and you can earn much. You can earn much more money being a research subject than you can working in the laundry for 30 cents a day or whatever. Mm-hmm. So the, you can say that they give consent for research, but it's actually not true very often. They're desperate for the money. The money, you know, money they earn in research might be the cost of freedom. It also, I, I outline a lot of the reasons why in medical apartheid it's not really um, voluntary, but the prison um, laboratory where you're sometimes housed for research can be a haven if you're someone who's targeted, you know, worried about being assaulted. For so many reasons, prisoners should not be involved in research at all. I find it unethical. And in fact, I don't think most industrial, in fact, I know industrialized countries on the whole still do not allow prisoners to be in medical research for that reason. They don't think that they can give consent. And yet some of the worst research has been conducted on prisoners, not only because of the, um, cruelty of the research and the conditions, but also because of the way the research was conducted very sloppily. Um, When one Dr. Stowe was banned from prisons because so many of his subjects died, not from the research, but from the filthy conditions in his laboratory. So anyway, we still, we, 
we banned most prison research during the 70s when a lot of these abuses came to light. And that coupled with people becoming aware of the Tuskegee syphilis study mm-hmm. made um, them decide that we're going to ban most of this research, only allowing that research they felt might benefit prisoners. But unfortunately, in 2005, an Institute of Medicine panel um, decided to reopen prison to research. Um, someone approached me about being on that panel, and I would have eagerly joined it. But then they said to me, but what is your opinion? Do you think that prison should be open to research? And I said, well, I had to make the decision after I learn what I'm going to learn on the panel, right? I was not invited. Right. So, <laughs> so they've been reopening the research. I write a bit about it in medical apartheid. And um, frankly, I'm not conversant. I have not continued following this over the past you know, decade or 15 years. So I don't know exactly what's happening now, but I'm not optimistic. It's really a mistake. Um, the fact that, as I mentioned, I think before, prison boards have given permission for prisoners who refuse permission. The fact that prison, prisoners after they're released have said that when they um, were asked to be in prison research, they were warned that if they said no, it would reflect negatively when it came time for their parole hearing. So it's not voluntary, despite the label informed consent. It's not voluntary at all. Now. At the same time, soldiers also have their freedom curtailed, but it's a bit different. Um, we esteem soldiers, right? Um, soldiers are heroes, etc. And I know something about this because both my parents were soldiers. My mom was a whack, and my dad was a paratrooper. They met at boot camp, Fort Dix, where I was born. Mm-hmm. And um, I spent all my childhood with parents who were in the military. And One of the things that happens as a soldier is that there are restrictions put on your freedom that civilians don't have to worry about. I mean, you literally have places where you can't go, places that are out of out of bounds, you know, that you will actually be punished if you get caught at the wrong restaurant or bar except that. And uh, most adults don't have to live like that. Also, there's something called the Ferris Doctrine. Before I even, I even get to that, you can also be forced to take medications to maintain your fitness for battle. This happens frequently. And there have been lawsuits, but they come to nothing largely because of the Ferris Doctrine. The Ferris Doctrine resulted from a, a trio of lawsuits in the 1950s brought by soldiers who had been harmed in the course of medical treatment or medical research. The uh, apex case was a soldier who complained of stomach pain, and during exploratory surgery, they found a a towel imprinted with the logo U.S. Army in his abdomen. Clear evidence of negligence. But the rulings were that, yes, okay, it was negligence. Yes, they were harmed um, either intentionally or through negligence, but soldiers cannot sue the government for injuries incurred in the course of, of duty. And that means that when there were anthrax, for example, anthrax vaccines foisted on U.S. soldiers without their permission, without their consent, um, and they were harmed, and they believed that the harms came from the vaccines, which were known to have problems, um, they couldn't sue. I mean, everyday people could sue in a case like that. If your employer forced you to take a medication and it harms you, you could sue. But if you're a soldier, you cannot. Also, the um, president has the right 
to force uh, to force soldiers to take medications, experimental medications uh, under waivers. So under various waivers, uh, soldiers have been made to take things like the anthrax medications, which anthrax vaccines, which turned out to be flawed and cause a lot of problems before they were finally freed from it um, by a federal court judge. Um, a lot of soldiers were harmed. Some were killed. And the soldier I wrote about, Jamikia Barber, a very brave woman, um, sued and sued to be let out of the army rather than have to take these. Um, she, she didn't want to take the anthrax vaccine and she asked to be reassigned to some place where we, she wouldn't have to receive it. But her CO wanted to make an example of her and she refused to take it, was thrown in jail and um, in the end was cast out of the army. She sued lost, but then persisted and finally did win her honorable discharge, you know, after I think 10 years. I mean, if we're talking about voluntary consent, um, that doesn't sound very voluntary. That sounds the definition of coercion. Exactly. I mean, between the Ferris Doctrine and between the requirement to take things for to take medications to maintain fitness for battle, that's one thing. But the waiver that, for example, allowed the military to foist anthrax vaccines, experimental vaccines on the soldiers, that was a whole new dimension. Now you're talking about research and still they could not could not say no. They couldn't um, they had no opportunity for consent. It's really important to, in my opinion, too, that they were lied to. The soldiers were told originally that this anthrax vaccine has been tested and found safe. But it had been tested and found safe and effective for cutaneous anthrax. It had never been tested and found safe for inhalation anthrax, a more deadly type, the type that these soldiers were likely to um, confront when they were assigned abroad. So they were testing it for inhalation anthrax and yet told it was uh, approved. It was not. So it's a kind of semantic sleight of hand that you will often have to encounter here. And so these soldiers, it's really poignant to me because so many of these soldiers, um, they loved the military. They were, you know, committed to it. And yet, you know, they had the heartbreaking experience of being thrown out of the military, put in jail, punished um, as traitors for refusing to have experimental drugs foisted on them. And similarly to prisons, military institutions tend to be fairly closed systems shrouded in a lot of secrecy. There's not a lot that gets in and out uh, of the military sort of complex if it doesn't want it out. So there's, uh, for me anyway, reading through both of these areas in your book, there were a lot of parallels between both of these, these two streams. Exactly. Exactly. The fact that people in the military... Um, voluntarily surrender certain rights that prisoners have taken away from them, you know, mm -hmm. uh, doesn't really change things because that makes it even more poignant. The fact that they are then, you know, abused. And also if we think about the fact that especially in the United States, but probably everywhere, um, but particularly in the United States, the people who make up the populations in prison and in the military are, again, um, 
non-white people are way overrepresented in both of those populations uh, when compared to the regular population. So there's a big skew here in who is being subjected to things without even the possibility of even a veneer of consent. That's true. My father was a military advisor in Vietnam twice. And um, if you went to Vietnam, you saw a lot of Washingtons and Gonzaleses. You didn't see any Trumps or Roosevelt's, you know, um, certainly not on the front lines. So, yes. Um, so has anything changed after the anthrax vaccine um, issue that happened uh, or the, the experiment that happened? Is, is that culture, is that framework, is that system still in place today in the U.S. military? Well, the culture is still extent. Mm -hmm. Fortunately, um, I have to say, I'm hoping I'm not mangling his name, Emmett Sullivan, the federal judge who ended this, um, is a national hero as far as I'm concerned. Um, and fortunately, we do have people in the judicial system who um, see this as abusive and unacceptable and are willing to end it. But the military culture, um, I think it's, I think it's, in fact, from what I can see, I, I'm not seeing it from the inside anymore. Mm -hmm. It's changing and I'm happy about that, but of course, changing far too slowly for me right. and for a lot of people, but at least it's changing. At least it is acknowledging and confronting some of its flaws that have been with us for a very long time. So I'm hopeful that eventually we'll stop doing this, but I'm not optimistic it's going to start tomorrow at all. I have to say that when Emmett Sullivan ended it, ended this and said that, you know, he gave a very moving speech about how these heroes should not be forced, you know, into military servitude, you know. And so he ended non-consensual administration of the anthrax vaccine. You know how the FDA responded? Hmm. It immediately approved the vaccine. Oh, wow. <laughs> so now it's an approved modality and now soldiers could be forced to take it right. as part of fitness for battle. Fortunately, Sullivan came back and like, no, you don't. <laughs> and he ended it. But it was so chilling to me, you know, obvious, you know, for one thing, I mean, just for one thing, housekeeping issue, the FDA has got to, they can't just approve it. They had to hold hearings, which they did not hold. Mm -hmm. Also, you don't have to be a scientist to understand that the drug that was experimental today and is made, made um, approved tomorrow with no new evidence, you know, and no new analysis, that it's been, that was a political move, not a yeah. scientific one. You know, the soldiers weren't any safer than they had been the day before. In fact, they were worse off now. So um, that I found chilling. And that's the kind of thing that we're going to have to deal with, you know, this um, two steps forward one step back mentality where there are always going to be people who are going to try to maintain this uh, status quo, even when it's harming people. So I'm curious as an ethicist, what systematic changes would you want to see to try and address this or to start addressing it? Oh, don't get me started. There are so many. Um, I just want to point out something I should have said earlier. If you go to the Code of Federal Regulations online, anybody can look up these laws for themselves and see what I'm talking about. Uh, 21 CFR 50.23-24 is the law 
that established um, the right to force people into medical research of their trauma victims. And the waiver that said that any quote unquote minimal risk study can be administered, um, conducted without getting consent is CFR 461116D. Now, having said all that, I think these, both of these should be repealed. And I also think there are other things in our laws that are very dangerous to consent to the right of people to say yes or no to medical research that also should be repealed. One of them is the fact that we have for-profit IRBs, investigational review boards. Mm -hmm. These are boards that are charged with deciding which research should go forward and which research should not. They're typically run by hospitals and medical institutions, but there's been a plethora of for-profit boards. And what they do is they advertise researchers. Do you want, do you want approval? Do you want approval fast? Come to us. We'll, we'll approve your study. And so basically buy your approval. Right. They're not saying that in so many words, but right. if you go to their sites and read what they have to say, despite maybe a sentence or two of lip service about quality, they're talking about fast results, mm-hmm. fast you know, approval. And so um, I'm not going to speak to the quality of the work that they do, but just knowing that rapid and positive results are their focus makes me worrying because there are so many things they should be focused on in terms of protecting patients and, su- and subjects and their rights. And I don't, I don't think that's a focus of theirs. Also, they had the government ran a sting. They actually sent around a uh, protocol asking for review, pretending to be researchers. And the protocol was that they wanted to dump one liter of fluid into the abdomen of surgical patients, pregnant surgical patients. And the fluid was something that they said would keep adhesions from forming during surgery. They didn't say what was in the fluid. They didn't say anything else about it, but that they that it would protect surgical patients from adhesions. And at least one for-profit IRB approved it without knowing what it was. There were all kinds of hints during the in the protocol um, that this was not a legitimate study. Right. In fact, the address was an address in a strip mall. Um, April Fools, I think, was one of the <laughs> pertinent staff people. The whole thing was completely absurd, but they went for it and they approved it. And when the government called them in for a hearing, they were very defensive and very adamant, you know, that the government was trying to retard science and things like that. Anyway, these for-profit IRBs, I think, are a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that um, we also need, there are many other things, I, I believe, but a moratorium. In fact, ending non-consensual research. I don't believe there's any justification for non-consensual research. And even if there were, we're not ready for it. We're not ready to administer it equitably and fairly. We need to end that. But I also think part of the problem is who gets to decide which research goes forward. These IRBs by law have to have one person who's not part of the institution, one person from the community. This one person is sitting there with what? A 12, 15 scientists, how can they possibly carry the day if they have a concern about the research? How can they possibly, how can their one lone voice influence what research does and doesn't go forward? I think the composition should be very different. They should be half scientists, 
an institution and half people from the area where the subjects are drawn from. So then you have people who can actually have some voice and power in raising any concerns that they have. I think if we do that, we'll end up with better research protocols to reflect the concerns of people. And I think that will make people more likely to, to be involved in the study. And they'll be more likely to see problems before they emerge that researchers are not well equipped to see. So these are some basic things I think should be happen, happening. I think they could happen now. And I also think that um, conflict of interest stricture should be much, um, should be tightened dramatically. Mm -hmm. If you are someone like um, the doctor who's conducting the hypothermia studies, who is going to profit if your study has positive results, then you should not be the one conducting that study. Doesn't mean the study can't be done. Let someone do it who doesn't have a financial interest. And better yet, someone who doesn't know you, someone mm -hmm. who can actually offer an objective assessment. So I think these things are minimally things that we can institute. We can do them quickly. They won't cost a lot of money. And, um, and they will reap huge rewards. I hesitate because I thought to myself, why do we always talk about money when it comes to doing things that are going to benefit uh, subjects rather than, you know, institution? Even if it did cost money, it'd be money well spent. Yeah, I mean, there is absolutely a call for important, valuable medical research, but we also want to do it the right way because it's really difficult to boy, oh boy, I, I have a real problem looking at medical, I mean, save lives, sure, but it's really hard to justify that research in, if it's being done badly, right? There is, there is a weight to that. There's a terrible taste that gets left in your mouth if you have to look at something that is potentially life-saving or not, and a trail of um, bad that's behind it. Like it's it's not an ends justifies the means kind of thing. And I think most people would broadly agree with that because it's the means are just so can be so bad for so many people. You're absolutely right. That consequentialist thinking is really, you know, ill-advised. And let's not forget that Conducting research in this way, the way that we're doing it now, um, is less likely to, for us to emerge with good results. Look at the polyheme study. It was touted as something that, okay, we're cutting a few corners ethically. We're going to end up with something very valuable and useful. No, you ended up with a modality that was killing more people than the standard of care. So this assumption that we're going to end up with something positive is something good to hope for, but it's very foolish to predicate our behavior on the belief that that's going to happen because we simply don't know. Yeah. It's sort of, you want to uh, use the adage, which is hope for the best, but sort of Expect plan for the worst, the worst right? Exactly. Expect the worst. Yeah. <laughs> There's a value to that adage. Sometimes uh, I use it regularly in my day job that sort of hope for the best, but plan for the worst. And I think that you absolutely have to do that with medical research because you're not dealing you're not dealing with um, people who come and you know sit in a chair and do an experiment and walk out with their twenty bucks. It's an entirely different kind of research that has a real and lasting impact on people's lives and not only the people 
in the hospital, the subjects there, but potentially also ripples out into their family and their children and a whole community of people. So there's just so many ways in which you want to approach this with your best foot forward, right? Exactly. And the research with uh, marginalized people in this country, African-Americans, Native Americans, they're the canaries in the coal mine. Mm-hmm. The harms that accrue to them today will accrue to everyone tomorrow. You know, one of the fine things I find really interesting is that um, people often talk about distrust in the African-American community around medical research. But according to a recent Pew um, survey, only 52% of whites um, trust medical researchers. 32% of blacks, but 52% of whites, it's not a resounding endorsement. Um, the reality is, this is a danger for everybody um, because when you lose the ability to exercise your will in the medical arena, which is happening at an escalating pace now, um, it's going to affect everyone and it's impossible to see what the ripple effects are going to be, but I can guarantee they're not going to be good ones. And I feel like as well, in particular in the United States that has a privatized healthcare system where there is healthcare service that is just simply out of reach of a large portion of the population, that there's also a real, even if you want to take a strong utilitarian bent here, you've also got to think about how, how especially in the US, there could there's a lot of research being done on a large portion of the population for whom the benefits of this research could be legitimately out of reach. Oh, yes. And even more to in the Dublin world. And I, you mentioned utilitarianism, and I think that's part of the flaw. We do have a, a leaning that way of the belief that the greater good, the greatest good for the greater number is the way to go. Mm-hmm. But think about what that means. If the greater number are relatively wealthy white people um, who are male, then you can you can actually fulfill utilitarian goals and still leave the vast majority of people of color in the dust, uncared for. So the tyranny of utilitarianism is um, a bit of a flaw here. I think it's a more communitarian view, looking at it, um, understanding our medical interdependence and understanding how how bad it is for us if any one group is being disproportionately harmed. (laughs) Absolutely. I'm also curious to know if you have any takeaways that you want the listeners to take with them. Uh, Is there a primary message you hope stays with our listeners or maybe prompts action of some kind on their behalf? I would urge you to educate yourself about um, medical research and what are the things you should be concerned about before you have to worry about this. Involving yourself in research is an altru- can be an altruistic thing. It's good to do it, but it's also good to educate yourself about the possible problems because, unfortunately, I don't think you can rely upon a researcher to educate you accurately due to that bad division of labor I spoke to earlier. Mm-hmm. It's very illogical division of labor. They simply are not equipped very often to give you a really objective view of what's happening. So do it for yourself. There are lots of sites online where you can look up this information and um, know what questions you want to ask. Uh, know what some of the, the big sticking points and problematic points are earlier. Don't believe all the materials that are handed to you. Ask pointed questions. Be your own best advocate. But having said all that, 
medical research is so important. It's not something to be, I don't want to see people throw the baby out the bathwater. Right. I want people to engage in research once they've convinced themselves that it is unethical and relatively safe. The dangers are disproportionate. But you have to take on some of that burden yourself until our government does a better job of educating the populace. Are there primary places online or maybe um, places in their community where people who want to stay abreast of what medical research might be being conducted in the places they live right now, where they can go and um, get that information or places where that information has to be posted or communicated? Clinicaltrials.gov. Go to clinicaltrials.gov and search for your city and search for informed consent. When it calls up a research study, read the page and look for informed consent. See how it see how it mentions it, what it says. When I do that, I sometimes find pages that say, explain to me why there is no informed consent. You know, the reason doesn't matter. It's important for you to know that there is no informed consent there. Um, and then if you're interested in the study, you can find out for yourself when you speak with them and ask your pointed questions. And so, but that's a good way of finding out what's being conducted in your area. And you can do searches for any number of pertinent things. If you're looking into black diabetes, you mm-hmm. can do you can do a search for diabetes studies in uh, Cleveland that have informed consent. So that's a really good place to start. In fact, it's my go-to beginning place. Awesome. Uh, Harriet, it's been absolutely great to talk to you. It was a really interesting book in the way that books that make me go, oh my gosh, often are. So thank you very much for writing it. And thank you so much for joining me today. It's been my pleasure, Shell. And you. if And if you would like to learn more about Harriet Washington, her book, Carte Blanche, The Erosion of Informed Consent in Medical Research, or her other writing, we have links available in our show notes, which you can find in the podcast app you're listening with right now, or by visiting the show notes for this episode on our website, scienceforthepeople.ca. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Science for the People. Science for the People is listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount. Your support keeps us afloat and able to keep making great new episodes, and we thank you for it. The show is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. We get help with special projects from K.O. Myers. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. The show is hosted by Bethany Brookshire, Anika Hazra, Marion Kilgower, and me, Rochelle Saunders. 